Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, and we come to you every Friday. Wait. Wait a second, Scott. This isn't Friday. It's not Friday, is it? It's actually Monday. This is Monday, uh, the first Monday. day of the week. Yeah, it's Monday, Monday. So why are, what are we doing? Why are we, why are we doing a podcast on a Monday? Well, uh, because I hold in my hands the brand new issue of The Mockingbird. Issue number eight, fall 2016, the mental health issue. It's our longest issue. I dare say it's our best and our most beautiful issue of the magazine. And we are coming to you today to feature it and highlight it and shove it down your throats. It is really a beautiful periodical. It's a beautiful, it, it's gorgeous and it's chock full of content. David, give us some of the highlights. Just run down quickly. What can people oh, be excited about? What can they expect? Oh, man. Well, we have, I mean, first of all, the artwork is incredible, as it always is, but that it sort of deserves a shout out of its own. Um, we have an interview with Heather, Heather Haverleski, sort of one of my favorite writers, who also is a advice columnist. We have an interview with Brian and Debbie Solemn, who've um, had the trial and real um, uh, drama of um, faith testing drama of raising someone who's been diagnosed uh, as a sociopath. Uh, we have uh, articles about medication and depression and suicide, but also about self-justification. We get to interview one of my favorite uh, social scientists ever, Carol Tavris, who is a uh, wrote the book um, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, all about self-justification. Scott, we have something from you about uh, Frank Lake and schizoid, the schizoid self. We have... Uh, I mean, I could just keep going. It's it's incredible. My sister-in-law, Bonnie Poonzal, talks about uh, attachment theory in, in, as it relates to God. We have an interview with Alistair McGrath's wife, the incredibly talented Joanna Calicut, about um, uh, assurance as it plays out for theologically and psychologically. We have a great a sort of first-person account of working at a um, – she calls it a funny farm as a, as a joke. But, uh, and then Will McDavid weighs in with a, a, how to cope with the modern world, a short guide. In the midst of it, there's poems from Gray uh, Jacobic, who is just, she's just an incredible poet. Lots of, uh, you know, lots of uh, uh, lists that are funny as well. I mean, we do one list that I like, especially called uh, Cures of Yore, which was sort of goes down through sort of what mental health. Um, uh, diagnoses and prognoses, in fact, from like ages past and really funny stuff and, and also alarming stuff from throughout history. We go through books we're reading. We go through not the best non-self-help, self-help books. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I can't recognize, re- uh, recommend this thing more highly. I think it's, um, it's thick. It's thick. It's beautiful. I'm holding it in my hands, for the, honestly, for the first time today, uh, and I'm just so proud. I'm so stinking proud. David, why, how does this fit into who Mockingbird is? Like, why a print magazine? You know, especially in the in the digital age. Like, why do a print magazine? Well, I mean, there's a few reasons. I think um, not a lot. Of, a lot of people don't read websites, or they sort of the older generation, but also the younger generation. Increasingly, people get their uh, their um, their information or their 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 thought uh, life, their f- spiritual fuel from other places. And but um, I think it was a way to um, feature longer pieces we were writing to something that was a bit felt a bit more permanent. Um, I think all of us are big fans of the artifact. You know, I, I love, you know, I collect vinyl records. And so I love actually holding something in my hand. And I think that uh, putting enough time and effort and care into something uh, that you can put on your bookshelf, um, even in a today's like is a, is a bigger privilege. It's also a risk. It's kind of countercultural. Um, but I think it, um, it delivers it, – it, it kind of sums up – these things function as mini books, in fact. We, we were thinking about doing mini books for a while, sort of, hey, what, are, what is Mockingbird thinking about? What are our writers, our constituents? What are we thinking about social media? What are we thinking about uh, forgiveness? What, where are we on uh, you know, um, technology these days? And uh, so these aren't, these aren't terribly timely. 
I mean, they're, they're timeless, hopefully, uh, although there, there is some current stuff in there. Uh, I want them to stand as, as sort of a, a ever-increasing kind of compendium of what uh, of, of thought and where we are right now with how do we integrate the message of the gospel and the message of grace with, um, with a specific theme. And that's, that's sort of how it fits in. But also really trying to do something that's excellent, which is um, – you can do now uh, with a f- small staff and not a lot of money in a way that you couldn't do uh, in the past. By the way, Har- Harry Connick Jr. just uh, came out. I for- forget. It was me. was on his show and said that vinyl is overrated. So just <laughs> for the record. So, yeah, the well, when you're moving, when you move houses, it's, it's a big liability. That's for sure. And to get the print magazine, people can just go over to our website. Well, they're actually have a uh, yes. You can get through the website, but we have a special uh, specialized website for the magazine. Magazine Magazine.mbird.com. Magazine.mbird.com, and you can buy individual issues. You can subscribe, um, and then you can also uh, sign up to give uh, to support Mockingbird Monthly, even as little as five dollars a month, which is what a ton of people do. Thank, thank God, it's really one of the ways we 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 keep going, and. then you automatically, if you give, you know, five, 10, 15, 20, uh, you know, a thousand dollars a month, you can, um, you'll automatically get whatever we got coming out. And so that's how you do it. David, thank you. And I hope that our listeners will grab a copy of the, the most recent magazine, The Mental Health Issue. Hashtag Ethan Richardson is my hero. In addition to being David's hero, Ethan Richardson, the editor in chief of the magazine, is also. My next conversation partner. Back on the special edition of the Mockingcast, Easy E, I call him, Ethan Richardson, the editor in chief of the of the of of Mockingbird magazine. It doesn't say editor in chief on the table of content like introduction thing. Are you indeed the editor in chief? I am the editor in chief, and don't let anybody else tell you different. Why is David the publisher? I don't know. I think Dave just wanted credit in some way. It's like if people want the, produ- uh, the production credit on a yeah, film. Yeah, it's a meaningless title. <laughs> Dave has it's, nothing it's, to do with this. It's all me. I get all of the glory. Self-justification. <laughs> so, okay, here's like my question. We, so you are a pu- an editor of a print magazine. Is that, is that like a retro calling? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's... I was telling someone the other day, like, especially working uh, for uh, Mockingbird, which spends so much of its energy online and sort of doing the day in and day out of blog posting and podcasting. um, It doesn't feel like cool retro. It feels like lost in the abyss retro because you're working on this project for you know, four months or three months and, um, and you're not getting a whole lot of feedback on the work that you're doing, but, uh, you feel like you're putting something together that's worth it. And then, uh, at the end of the three months, you know, you throw this thing out there and you hope that, that people bite, you know? So what you're saying is the mental health issue of the magazine eroded your own mental health. Yeah. I'm, I've gone completely insane. Well, that's uh, sometimes that's good for an artist. A little bit, a little bit of an edge. So tell me, what are you most, I mean, there's, you have some big name contributors in this, in this edition of the magazine. Who are you, what are you most excited about? What should our readers jump to as this comes in their mailboxes? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's all the familiar faces, you know, there's, there's the zeitgeist himself, uh, who's, who's writing about suicide. Um, there's the podcaster himself, Mr. Scott Jones, uh, writing about Frank Lake. Indeed, I am featured in this uh, in this in this issue, which is very. Uh, it was a thrill to write. Yeah, and then um, as far as folks that we've we've talked to, um, you know, Scott, you did a an interview with Joanna Collicut, who's um, who's a psychologist and a minister in in England, and and very British. So British. And then we also have Heather Haverleski, who is one of our mocking heroes, heroines. Uh, she just put out the book, How to Be a Person in the World. And she also does the Ask Polly column for New York Magazine. She's such a big deal. It was so cool to have her in there. And then we also have someone else that we continually refer to, 
uh, is this book by Carol Tavares and Elliot Aronson um, about self-justification. Mistakes were made, but not by me. Who will, who will later hear on this podcast? Right. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are kind of just some of the big names. But I tell you what, the, the issue is so chock full of uh, good content that it really doesn't matter who's you're reading. It's, it's just amazing. Do you like cold call people? I mean, how do you get contri- like contribute? How do you solicit contributions? Um, for the most part, we either we either go with stuff that from the website we've uh, we've really loved. Like that's how we reached out to Heather and and to Carol. But um, honestly, it's it's been kind of a Holy Spirit thing each time where. Either we, we get submissions that are too good to um, to not include, or we just feel like someone's perfect for the job, and so we reach out to them, and um, and and so each time it's it's really it's really worked out. This one in particular has been amazing. Is it like a pregnancy? Like, is, are people like me who are like you know? last minute submitters and everything. Are you like, is this thing going to be born? Is it like, you know, I'm hoping for 10 fingers and 10 toes kind of, is there that sort of a feeling <laughs> as the things yeah. come together? Yeah. And it, well, it's, it's funny because, you know, I've, it's, uh, there's so many steps to the process, which I'm sure is like a pregnancy where like, you know, you, you go through the, the, process with the actual writers and then you're going through the process with the editors and then you're going through the process with the art people and by the time the proof is is ready to be picked up at the print shop it's like i don't even want to look at the thing it's it's been it's been in me for so long that i'm just ready to get it out so i'm sure all the uh, pregnant women and women who have given birth in our audience love us our comparisons and analogies i'm sure those are just uh, greeted with warmth and fuzzies and you you wrote a really interesting piece called overmedicated under god help in the age of antidepressants yeah yeah so one of the things that is kind of a recurring theme in the issue is kind of in, in the age of medicine in the age of um, science you have a growing understanding of pathologies and diagnoses that um, that are ever expanding, and so the things that we used to think were just um, quirks that people had, or um, or illnesses that people had, are suddenly medicalized. You know, they they have they have definitions and they have ways that we can talk about them. Um, but what also happens is is there's a limiting factor there too, right? I mean, there's there's a way that we begin to understand ourselves as really just um, you know anatomical cells, and you take a certain chemical and those cells uh, reproduce in a healthy way or in an in an abnormal way, and um, and you get really close with all of these essays. Um, what happens is is when you're talking about science and especially the science of the mind, you end up getting very close to talk about the soul or what our internal life is like. And as much as we want to take medicine for aches and pains and external injuries, it's, it's something totally different to talk about the internal ones. You know, um, we get very afraid and there's a lot of stigma with talking about illness of the mind. I love how you conclude your piece. You say grace is offensive no matter who you are, but to the over-medicated pill popper, to the willful self-helper, to the mother who needs all the help she can get, the grace of God will always be the best medicine. It remains all we ever need, even if we still need the pills. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just, as someone who, you know, I've, I've been medicated, um, I, I've been on antidepressants off and on for uh, the last 10 years of my life. And, and, um, especially in Christian circles, there's, there's a sense that, um, weakness is allowed, um, but only in sort of the victimized sense of weakness. Um, internal weakness looks a little bit too much like a lack of faith or, um, a lack of sort of inner grit. And, what I'm trying to get at in, in the essay and what I hope the rest of the magazine gets at is the fact that um, 
mental illness is 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 just another way that we are weak you know and and also therefore just another way that jesus is present to um, bring us healing ethan you're a treasure in a clay jar and so is this uh issue of the magazine thanks for all your hard work on it yeah thanks scott i hope everybody enjoys next we'll hear from carol tavris who's the co-author of mistakes were made but not by me and who is interviewed in this issue of the magazine uh welcome to the podcast for the first time thank you glad to be here so (laughs) there's a scene in the big chill where uh, jeffrey goldblum's character says a human being can live without food or go a day without food or without sex, but we can't go a day without a good rationalization. If Aristotle says we're rational animals, your uh, reissue of your book called Mistakes Were Made, but not by me, of course, might, might assert with Goldblum that we're really just rationalizing animals, right? Well, you know what? That's Elliot Aronson's great line, which he's been saying for many years since his work on cognitive dissonance. We are the rationalizing animal, and that's absolutely so, because meaning, meaning and consistency are so important to how we function every day. Um, We don't stop to question why it is we're doing everything we do and why we think what we think, but it's a very efficient system to be able to rationalize what we do and what we believe without having to stop and argue with ourselves about it. Should I be brushing my teeth this morning? (laughs) Or let alone floss. Yeah. So there was this commercial, I guess in the 80s, it was a public service announcement. Remember it was the, this is your brain. It was like a pan. And then the egg would start dropping it and fry. And so this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? So if we were doing the, this is your brain, this is your brain on cognitive dissonance. How would the commercial look? (laughs) How would the commercial look? Let's see. Well, your brain in a state of consonance, would be blissed out on a beach in Hawaii, you know, having a nice piña colada and really feeling <laughs> sunshine. Your brain on dissonance would be very jangled. Uh, you would be. Um, what would the what would the image be? You know, teetering from the top of a mountain and wondering if you're going to get down safely. Uh, dissonance is really uncomfortable. That's the fascinating thing about it. We're, we may not even be aware of it because we go along rationalizing before we're aware that we're even uncomfortable about an idea. We do that by just pushing the idea out of awareness so that we don't have to deal with it. Do you like when you go to like cocktail parties at friends' houses, do they like see you and like scurry to the corner because they're like, no. No, she's going to put me in a state of distance. She's going to question all my self-justifying delusions. I'm just going to have a That's right. Word. Scott, I can tell all of yours immediately, even long distance here on this podcast. Oh, look out <laughs> behind you. I see something you're trying to cover up. All right. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. no you, <laughs> you are, I'm afraid, worried. You, you have what we call the... Uh, the fear of psychologists worry, which is that somehow you can see into your mind at all times. <laughs> just what you're thinking, you nasty person. Right? No, 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 no. But I'll tell you something. Actually, in, in seriousness, it's a, it's a really interesting question because my friends do often, we often do find ourselves talking about ideas that we need to change or beliefs that we have to give up, whether they're scientific views of something or personal ones or perceptions of our family members. And um, it's really, it's really helpful to know when we are trying to resolve dissonance in an unhealthy way. Yeah. Friends are like good friends are like mirrors sometimes, right? They help you. They help you. Jonathan Haidt and his work, says that morality um, binds us together. It binds and it blinds. Yes. <laughs> you have a kind of related phrase in your work uh, called uh, believing is seeing. Uh, why is believing seeing? Right. Well, we usually think, you know, seeing is believing. If I see something, I see somebody uh, commit a crime in a store, um, and I see it as evidence of my own eyes, and it must be true. 
But what we know from psychological research is that our eyes aren't always good witnesses. What we see is often contaminated and distorted by what we believe we are seeing. Um, this is very, very hard for people to accept. We think there's something, you know, like the eyes are a camera. We're just accurately recording everything that's happening. But all we have to do is look around what's happening in our country today with so many um, scenes of violence. Um, look at Black Lives Matter, where the whole essence of the dilemma is that police and non-police are seeing the same situation differently based on the beliefs they have going into it. That's why what we believe has such a powerful influence on what we see. Yeah. It's, it, it, it seems to me, okay. From your work, right. If I am, well, one of the two things, first of all, it made me think that there's this old adage, right. That, you know, somebody has to be finished last in medical school. You know, somebody has got to be the worst student. Your work almost makes me think I want the person that finished last because maybe they won't have such a high view of themselves and they'll be more open to watching for mistakes or that stuff. But like, you know, if the person was third in medical school or something, I, now I have apprehension. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You're right in a way because what the research shows is that very often it's the people who have the highest self-esteem, who are the most confident, who are the most arrogant that everything they do is right who find it hardest to accept evidence that they screwed up, you know, whether it's in medical school or law or any other uh, profession that there is. And um, it's why, I mean, you know, the stories in our book that doctors who see themselves as good, caring, compassionate, wise people, I could never make such a mistake. I could never, you know, willingly, you know, harm a patient and that they don't believe they could, but it's crucial for all of us to be able to say, I made a mistake. I did something really wrong here. Now, what can I do to learn from what I did wrong in a way that allows me to still see myself as a good, competent person, but one who, in this case, made a mistake? I heard a wonderful story, actually, by a physician who did a biography of Virginia Apgar, the woman who lent her name to the Apgar score, which is given to newborn babies on how they're you know, doing physically and so and she was a tremendous medical student. She had, as a resident, she was working on a surgery with her senior physician. And she made a mistake. She clamped an artery. Well, she didn't know that if she made this mistake or not. The patient died in surgery. And later she said to the, the main physician, did I do this? Did I clamp the wrong artery and cause this patient's death? And he said, you know what? Let it go. There's nothing that can be done now. Patient died. It's a tragedy. These things happen. Just get on with your life and continue. But she couldn't stand not knowing. She had to. And so she went to the morgue and looked uh, at the autopsy and found that she had, in fact, been responsible for that patient's death. Now, I mean, she, you know, she had to know so that she would become a better doctor, so that she would not make that mistake again. And you think of the guts it took to be able to do that investigation to say, gee, could I have been wrong in order to make yourself a better person, a better doctor. That's, um, that's an amazing story. Isn't it? If what your research tells us is, is true, which I, I take it to be, I mean, it looks like a very legit book here. Uh, when we make moral decisions, all right, like, so, if I make a decision, uh, you know, a personal one, or if I'm making one in public life, right? The moment I make that decision, I'm going to start looking for, I'm going to read, I love how you call memory, the personal, like the personally like biased, like historian of our mind that like writes the story that we want to hear all the time. So like, it seems to me like if I make a decision that's ambiguous, I'm going to start justifying, you know, the, the, the decision and it's going to dispose me more to making a similar ambiguous, you know, moral choice. And so down the road, I, I'm just going to, it's like, I'm going to be, it's very easy to just become a dreadful person with no moral sensitivities, it mm -hmm. seems. You, you nailed it, Scott. That is exactly the process. You know, the, the example we say in our book, you know, how do you corrupt 
a good man. You just get him to take one tiny step off the pyramid in making a decision toward how you want that person to behave, and self-justification will do the rest. That was what happened in the Watergate scandal, for example. But you know what? We see that with uh, the Volkswagen scandal, you know, the diesel engines. We see it with the um, Wells Fargo people. Nobody starts out saying, hmm, let's see what kind of plan I can come up with that will uh, rip off millions of people and that will deceive our customers and that will um, cause us to put a dreadful drug on the market that's not harmful. And it's okay. Nobody starts off thinking that way. What they do is saying, hmm, what can I do to maximize my profit here a little bit with this drug? Because that's good for the, you know, that's good for people. You know, this might be a really good drug. You put a lot of money into the drug, a lot of money, a lot of money. And now the evidence starts building that maybe your drug isn't so helpful. You know, gee whiz, maybe people's legs fall off. Well, listen, they have another leg. They don't need two legs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so it's sort of step by step. You can get people into really deep moral compromises that they might never, ever have imagined themselves in. Because then it's very hard to get yourself out of that hole and say, you know, for me, the corruption began a long time ago when I first agreed to do that little thing. And we justify it and keep going. I think you would probably make a great, like, dating personal life coach right i would love to see you like as featured on like the bachelor I'm like don't no, you're just you know you're, you're self-deluded <laughs> you're crafting the right knife you're picking the wrong woman or you're picking the wrong guy like you would be i would love a, like a spot with you on those shows because i think that the, the results would be much better for the contestant do you give like dating advice to your friend have you been like a person that's given a lot of romantic advice to you know, get colleagues and things like that. <laughs> Scott, if you have any questions for me, just contact me right after the podcast. I absolutely will. My <laughs> wife probably has a question. Okay, let me give you a, Yeah, she could tell you about all my self-deluding narratives. Thank you. That's a, uh, that's a very flattering question. See, but in fact, here's how it works. If um, I'm dating somebody, I really, really like this person. Okay? You know, I'm, and how this works for anybody is you get excited about the person. And so you start, you think, oh, this person's really, this is the thing. So now what do you do from what we know about how the mind works? Now you will start noticing all the good things about this person. And you will ignore or forget or minimize the things you don't like about that person. All right, that's normal, that's healthy, but it means that you won't welcome information from your most loved friends saying to you, that guy is really creeping me out, and by the way, why did you loan him $25,000? You know, <laughs> you're, you're not going to want to hear information from your friends and family and loved ones, if that information is dissonant, discrepant with what you want to believe about the person. So we see in relationships, we describe this in the book actually at some length, that when people are in a relationship, it's beneficial to discount the things you don't like or to say, oh, he's just having a rough day and he's really a sweetheart. The problem occurs if the person really is doing things that are destructive or harmful or cruel and you're busy justifying them because you want to stay in the relationship. Yeah. It's, there's this concept, uh, it's this old Protestant reformation concept called imputation. We're like, now when we were used the word impute, it's only negative, right? You imputed those motives to me, but you know, the reformers were thinking, well, this is, you know, the way good spirituality works. You realize that sort of, God almost looks at you as better than you are, and it gives you a sense of forgiveness. And I feel like that, it sounds like on the horizontal plane, that works well too. If you kind of treat the person like their best selves, uh, uh, it kind of could probably lead to better paths of flourishing. Remember, remember Scott, remember, Scott, in relationships or job choices or any decision we make, 
we will always be at our most open-minded before we make the decision. <laughs> You're right. Before we make the decision, then we're willing to look for evidence for good and bad in this person or whether this is a good idea or a bad idea, what's the benefits of this job versus the other job. But the minute we make a decision, this is the essence of cognitive dissonance. The minute we make a decision, our minds will want to reduce any conflict over the thought that we made the wrong one. So after we make a decision, we will start looking for all the reasons we were right and smart to make that decision, and we will look for all the evidence that the other decision would have been wrong, stupid, and destructive. You, you mentioned in your book this study that I think the Gottliebs did, right, of, of like 100 couples or something, or, or 50 couples, that they did, and they predicted with 100% accuracy uh, over the course of like several years which couples were going to get divorced before they got divorced. I think seven out of the uh, group got divorced and with, they picked it to a T. What was their secret? Tell us what was the, what was, what, what was the one thing that was a, just a huge um, key to them? It tipped them off that the relationship was disintegrating. Well, the, the real key is, well, in, in their terms is that when couples start regarding each other with contempt. Contempt is the most toxic emotion. You can't come back from contempt. I have contempt for who you are and what you do and what you believe and what you feel. You can be angry at a loved one. That's fine. That's normal as long as you're not abusive and hostile and cruel. But it's contempt that was the most predictive emotion of a couple's dissolution because think what a what a mean and nasty feeling that is to have towards somebody you mentioned one of the in the book one of the couple says you know i married i what they asked why she was drawn to her husband i think well in college i thought he was smart you know how wrong was i or something like that like these net these sort of dark narratives start to take shape and they can a, a dark narrative um I mean, see again it's it's again it's the shift that can happen in a relationship from I love this person. Almost everything this person does is completely wonderful. This person has a few flaws. I can accept them because overall this person is just so darling and so thoughtful and dear. Okay, I can accept the crabgrass in the lawn, you know, because it's not important. But when that balance shifts, when people start seeing only the bad in the other person, then the relationship is doomed because in effect at that point you have made the decision to leave and now you will look for all the reasons to justify the decision to leave. You talk about imputation. In psychology, we talk about attributions. How do I explain the other person's behavior? Do I attribute it to something in them, in their personality or nature, or do I attribute it to the stress they're under at work or, you know, pressures in the world or, you know, their upbringing, those things that they can't do much about, you see. And so some attributions are forgiving and some are blaming. We, you seem to, in your work, I, I mean, I think one of the things that drew the folks at Mockingbird to your work is I think we, and please, I mean, this is the highest, the highest form of phrase. You seem to have a relatively low anthropology. And by that, we mean you look at human beings as pretty mixed bags that are capable of a lot of uh, defeating and self-justifying narratives uh, whereas, as, as supposed to somebody with a really rosy-eyed, optimistic, high anthropology, oh, humans are just great, and you know, are there are there many colleagues in your field that are high anthropology people? I mean, are you kind of is do you you do a little social psychology uh, for a while? Do, does it inevitably turn you into a pretty uh, uh, realist view of the human condition? Well, no, okay, that's a wonderful question, um, but it's the difference between philosophy, in a way, and psychological science. What social psychology is as a field within psychology, and most people don't know this, they think all psychologists are therapists, you know, and psychoanalysts or something, but no. Social psychology is the study of human behavior in social context. Social context can just be you're talking to somebody at your desk, but our, because our heads are filled with other people, but so the question in social psychology is not, are we inherently good or are we inherently bad? The question, we are we inherently prejudiced? Are we inherently warmongering? 
Are we inherently vicious and evil and immoral and nasty? The questions we ask are, under what conditions will people behave morally and considerately and cooperatively and kindly? And under what conditions will they become prejudiced and hostile and mean and vindictive? So the very question isn't, are we all good or all bad? But what makes us more likely to be good or bad? Is a cable news like um, panel, like is that the context that makes people warmongering and claim it bad? <laughs> it seems like we're in such a tribal, close-minded segment of our history right now, at least in America. I mean, and, and it seems like social media reinforces all the confirmation bias. Is, that, is social media like a driver of, of some of this sort of self-justification stuff? The social media, for, for what, you just, what you just said in there is exactly the point, is that it has made it possible for people to just hang out with others like them who reflect their own views, even when it's time to give up those views, even when those views are dreadfully wrong. I mean, look at the big lie about Obama not being born in the United States. Only people hanging out with others sharing that lie could continue to believe it. Um, many, many years ago, you know, there was a few national news outlets. The whole country basically watched the same kind of news together. You could agree or disagree, but you didn't have these little boxes of groups with particular beliefs never speaking to one another, and that's the danger. And the other thing is, you said quite rightly, we are tribal. We are tribal, and we are especially tribal when we feel threatened or afraid. So when anybody speaks to the lesser angels of our nature, speaks to our fears and stokes fears about other groups, other tribes, other ways of doing things. You know, it's it's very easy to stir people's prejudices and hostilities. And by the way, easy to reduce them too. When people cooperate and work together, oftentimes that animosity vanishes. So in your work, what's the biggest thing that you realize, oh my gosh, I'm self-delusional too. Like, what is the biggest delusional thing you think you discovered about yourself or you're the biggest like self-justifying narrative <laughs> running around in your own story? I have many. And, you know, thanks to working with Elliot Aronson. I mean, he's just the most wonderful collaborator. But, um, but working with him has really made me aware of how uncomfortable it feels when I realize I have to change my view of something that I have taken very seriously or believed to be true for a very long time. Some of these are medical matters or scientific issues that I was really sure something was so. Um, I mean, there's one sort of big one in our culture. Everybody thought for years and years and years that eating fat is bad for you and eating fat is what makes you fat. The evidence has shown this not to be true, but the people supporting the, you know, all those people who've been eating low fat yogurt for years and years, you know, don't want to give up that view. Uh, Low-fat food became um, popular because sugar. Right, the sugar, yeah, the sugar lobby. Yeah, it's amazing. As we now know. So people have to, you know, change their minds on that one. Anyway, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> there are many, many times in which I am aware that I'm protecting something that I believe deeply and that I'm not willing to change. And many, many times when I feel really stupid and foolish and wrong for having... <laughs> having done something that that I think of myself as being better than to have done. That's not a very clear sentence, but I think you get the gist. Oh yes. I don't I don't feel I'm a, I'm above this mechanism at all. Are there uh, I mean that you talk about the self-justification mechanism in human being and human behavior. I mean it's it's a universal phenomenon although it plays out differently in different cultural contexts because the distance is caused by different things. Are there certain, in your, in your research, are there belief systems, ideologies, religious traditions or practices that mitigate it? Are, are there things that, like, that help kind of, uh, uh, you know, that helps curb the practice? Or are, are, are we all just, like, hopelessly doomed? 
pretty much no matter where, <laughs> where we're socially located ourselves. No, I, I don't think there is any belief system that makes us better able to accept dissonance or to accept evidence that we're wrong. I would say this, um, to the extent that any belief system and any religion teaches humanity humility mm. and compassion, that is a view that th those are the antidotes to self-justification because they require us to think of the other person, to recognize that we can be a good person and still be wrong and still have made a mistake and still try to make up for it, um, rather than to justify rigidly those beliefs. And what I find, you know, looking at virtually any religion in the world, most of its members will use that religious philosophy on behalf of kindness, cooperation, and compassion. But the downside is that very often a religious philosophy motivates anger toward those who don't share the religion mm -hmm. and cruelty toward them and war. So you see, once again, we see that the capacity for compassion or for cruelty exists in all of us and in all religions. Yeah, and I see, I mean, what I see in American religious life so often is where when there's a place, and there's sadly, you know, there's not enough of them that really preaches a, a gracious sort of self-understanding that you're a mixed bag and that's okay, warts and all. I feel like people are able to sort of be more honest about here, but so many religious institutions are, it, 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 they're more like uh, they you know, cast themselves as museums for saints instead of hospitals for sinners. So then everybody, well, I got to look like a saint and I got to self-justify and I got to put my tie on. I got I to convince anybody, everybody that I don't need forgiving for anything. Yeah. So thank you so much for talking with me and for your work. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and I'm delighted you've enjoyed the book so much. And if you need any, uh, any dating advice, Scott, just give me a call. <laughs> I'm happily married, so I'm glad I won't. But All right, thank you. marriage advice. Thank All you right. again. Thank you, Carol. The conversation you're about to hear with Brian and Debbie Solemn is, I think, unlike any conversation we've ever had on the podcast. They wrote a wonderful piece for the magazine, a moving piece, an incredibly vulnerable piece called Confessions of Parental Recidivists, Searching for Hope in Raising a Mentally Ill Child. They were just as vulnerable talking with me as they were in the piece, and I encourage you all to read their moving story, and I thank them for being so gracious, open, and honest in telling their story. I, I'll tell you, I, I am struck by your candor, vulnerability, and courage in writing this piece. Why, why did you do it? What, to, were you, how did you come to, to write this? Um, <clears throat> it started last spring at the New York City Mockingbird Conference, and I was sitting talking with Ethan Richardson, and he had brought up that the topic of the next magazine was the mental health issue. And just in passing, I had said, I said, man, I could write an article on, on raising a mentally ill child. Um, and he kind of poked and prodded at that statement a little bit. And right around April or May, Something like that. Uh, he sent a request if we would put it on paper. And so that's where it came from. You say in the piece, um, you say every family has its own brand of dysfunction. Uh, but, but often we don't feel like we're able to speak about it. Uh, this is what happens when the church tradition you belong to tends to sell itself as a clubhouse for the put-together rather than a hospital for the sick. And then you say, thankfully, by God's grace and mercy, your cynicism has given way to pity and a plea for forgiveness, for being shitty parents, for compiling years of mistakes, even for the intentional harm done in Jesus' name. We want 
wanted to do it right, but ma- raising a mentally ill child was the last thing we ever expected to do. What I mean, where are some of the? Do you feel comfortable talking about where the highlights of the mistakes that, in light of the unexpected, unforeseen circumstance of having a mentally ill child? And this is your oldest child, right? Correct. Where did you feel like you needed grace and mercy in the midst of that? Well, I think it came from what it was doing to us. And the, the advice that we were getting um, was obviously not only was it not helpful, it was actually doing more harm. Um, and where we where we needed uh, to find grace and forgiveness was I learned to see, I, I would see a little bit of myself in him. And it was almost like uh, he was holding up a mirror to an extent of um, some behaviors that I used to demonstrate when I was uh, an adolescent. Um, and, and just the whole, you know, kind of that mockingbird theme of we're all the same when it comes to our sin. Um, none of us reach that bar uh, or wherever it is. But uh, so it was it was mostly a no, it would come after an incident and then. There was the the period of time afterwards where you, uh, I would find a place alone and start mentally beating myself up um, about you know obviously you know what had just happened was not glorifying in any way. So did, did, were there times where where you talk about how you 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 realized at a very young age that your oldest figured out a, a way to triangulate and play off each? Were there time play you off against each other? Were there times? Where you thought we're just not going to make it, like our marriage, because of the struggle with raising a child that, that has such challenges. I don't know that it was ever, uh, I mean, it definitely felt like we weren't going to make it. I don't know. I mean, having been raised where, you know, divorce is pretty much not an option unless, I don't know, ex- in extreme circumstances, I, I don't think that we ever felt like our marriage wasn't going to make it. but felt like we just in general weren't going to make it. Does that make sense? Like as a family, like it, it just kind of crash and burn in general. Yeah. There's, you know, many times and I've used these exact words and I've said it to Debbie was it's either him or me um, because both of us in this house is not, is not working as the father. I, I felt um, a responsibility to kind of be the buffer between him and the healthy people on the side of the, the family with, especially with Debbie and with the other three boys. So being that first line of defense, um, was, would just was killing you. Yeah. It would yeah, actually just, uh, just beat you up and to the point where it was affecting my work and, um, just every other aspect of life. And it still does. And it still does. Yeah. And you, uh, what you mentioned in your piece that after, he had some incidents more more recently in life that he was diagnosed. What was the diagnosis that they gave you? Um, it was histrionic and antisocial personality disorders. Which sometimes go hand in hand, they say. Yeah. But you say that, you know, and it's hard as it must have been to hear that, but you also talk about how there's a demystifying, right? And, and, and actually... I mean, sometimes labels are, are, are harmful, but sometimes it sounds like they can be helpful in that, you know, the, the thing has a name. You can talk about it. You, you can, it's not this boundless thing. Well, you know, it kind of got some borders all of a sudden. We had, you know, done the, the Google diagnosing for years, you know, um, typing up symptoms and or looking up symptoms and, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. Just looking for uh, some answers. Yeah. So at least we could talk intelligently, hopefully, with perhaps a future counselor or therapist. But once it had, once it came from a professional and, and, and we were able to get some knowledge about it, it finally had some borders. And we had some coping techniques that were new to us. And it, it gave us an explanation to family members. Well, and it just, yeah, like when you use the word demystify, I mean, I I feel like we have spent years and years just completely bewildered and baffled because I I mean I know parenting is not an easy job but this this just 
just seem to go beyond. But, you know, you, you struggle alone and that's a hard road. It sounds like given the your piece that that I, I, I read I read recently, which again I, I it's incredibly moving. I hope all of our listeners will get the magazine and read it. But it sounds like is it fair to say the church was often less than helpful to you in some of the situations and struggles that you found yourself in? At first you couldn't you didn't you didn't really talk about it. And you couldn't because you really didn't know what it was. You would just have reports from, you know, other other people in the church of he was disruptive here doing this and, but it was, it was never an environment and I don't know, maybe it still isn't, but where you could find some sort of support or help. I mean, if you, if you get cancer in the church or some other physical injury, I mean, they're all over the place to help you out, you know, bringing you meals and, and, and that, which is great. But with things like this, um, it was really our, our, our perceived understanding was that, the way he was was our fault. And if you would just do this. I mean, you know, we went to the the parenting seminars and the, oh, what was it, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the Dobson bringing up boys and, and, and all that sort of thing where, you know, you, 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 you want to try, you want to, you know, give it your all and, and this time we'll turn it around. But doesn't happen. Did did you ever like feel yourselves in those seminars after a while just being like, gosh, this is such bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I probably Brian more than I. I I you know, he's just he can just speak more frankly. And um I've come around, I would say. I think that I don't know, this is a tangent. I, I think the hard part for us now is, you know, when we in the article and we talk about the cynicism giving way to pity, I, I we still struggle with cynicism a lot, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's a still a kind of default reply or response that is still we still don't trust it. It's like that. Uh, what do we call it? Kind of that that law radar. You know it immediately. You you can see it immediately um, within the first. You know, just within a short conversation with someone, my our tendency is to immediately discredit it. And well, we were raised under it, and when you, I like to use the phrase. I mean, in my upbringing, it was always they were always referring to the slippery slope, and you know, whatever that is. But I, I feel like I feel like I've I've rolled down the slippery slope, and the the view from here is much better. You know, I guess when we explain it, I mean, as Mockingbird explains it, the low anthropology, that view of life makes so much more sense than what we were raised with, where with the idea that you're always getting better, where it's your, whether it's your parenting or your, you know, your own habits or. You know, you're constantly, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, but people would, would greet you in church and this is a question they'd ask. They'd say, how's your walk? And you knew immediately what they meant when they're asking, how's your walk? You're like, I'm in a wheelchair. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so you're, and and you felt like you always had to have this victorious testimony. And when, and there's nothing like uh, mental illness in the family to, to shatter that delusion that you're getting better, you know? Yeah, I can only imagine. And you share in your piece that I think the diagnosis came as a result, right, of your son having some infractions with the law, like a series of drug-related things and other incidents, part and parcel with this. I don't even know if, can you call it a severe mercy that, that you know, that you get this diagnosis and you get a, some handle at least a little bit on it. And yet, I mean, I can't imagine the ambiguity that looms in your son's future and your own feelings about that. I mean, how, how are you guys handling things day to day? Well, that I, I, I honestly, I mean, you know, people have these little slogans that say, you know, one day at a time, whatever, but it's almost like when you're living with this, that's, that's about your only way to cope really is you just, you just can't think if there's one thing I've learned is I can't think ahead, even though I, you know, obviously still do because you just 
with this sort of things, especially where they're so unpredictable, it, you know, you, you'd live in a constant state of anxiety if you, I mean, there are times where we think we're just waiting for the next thing to happen, but for the most part to cope from day to day, it's just thinking about now and not getting ahead of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. You don't make plans. You don't, you, you, you just kind of do the next thing. You know, you, you never announce that we're doing this at this time because if something happens where it doesn't happen, then you're in for, again, what we call that hostage crisis, um, constantly holding you accountable to what you said. And if it doesn't transpire how he envisions it, it's it's a meltdown. So you don't really keep secrets from anyone, but you don't make announcements about where you're going, what you're doing, um, even from three to four hours out. I mean, I feel like dreadful even asking this, but like, have you, do you ever find yourself at some points thinking, gosh, I mean, what if we hadn't had him? Like, what would our lives be like? Would it, do you find yourself capable of, of, of trains of thought like that when things are tough? Yeah. It's oh, terrible. Sure. I've said, I've said it many times. I said, we should have never had kids. We should have never had kids. And you know, I, I, I am ashamed that I even verbalize that, let alone think it. You know, it's colored every aspect of our life. I mean, we have three younger sons and it's, I don't know, maybe this sounds really negative, but it, it's, it's, it's affected that it's, you know, it's almost like it casts a pall on every aspect of life. Yeah. You know, you're not only, you know, feel like you've been robbed of any sort of joy or, um, interaction with the sick child. It's also been taken away with the other three as well. To an extent. Yeah. They find a way to, to kind of deal with it on their own. And some, But sometimes as a parent, it's really hard because I know everyone has hard things in life, but I look at the other three and I think, you know, this isn't fair to them. And But then I just have to step back and think that, you know, maybe this will somehow, I don't know, I'm too cynical to think that, well, maybe somehow this will have a good effect or some sort of positive effect on them. but. You know, I don't know. Where has God's grace showed up in the surprising, you know, and maybe peculiar, maybe sometimes absurd ways? Like, what are the ways that grace has showed up for you in in unexpected ways? I think um, for me, and it's kind of, it seems a little backwards, but the, this, uh, I I, I certainly have more freedom now, or I, I think I have more freedom. I'm afraid to use it. A lot of times, but also with not having a uh, belief that I need to get better um, or be better has also. Well, it's, I mean, Brian is somebody I think that just by nature or just how he was wired, um, I just think there's some people that just have this um, internal, I don't know, sense of shame. That's a huge burden to carry. And um, when that's compounded by what they're telling you at church, I think it was to the point or so five years ago when we left our church that, you know, he, he couldn't, we just couldn't live that way anymore. So it's, in some sense, it's the, the, the letting go of trying to like, let for, to, to try to make life any different than it is, mm-hmm. <laughs> to accept what it that's is. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. I think too, the, Brian has often said that in the, churches we've been in that it's almost like um family is is an idol um especially i think in conservative christian circles it's like the family is you know it's all about the family and being a a, a godly father a godly father and a proverbs 31 woman well and, whatever but i saw i saw i saw a bumper sticker in colorado springs once focus on your own damn family <laughs> 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 I'm sure there are more than one of those floating around in Colorado Springs. So that that's part of it. The the burden being lifted is um, when you step back and you see, you know, obviously our family could we couldn't that wasn't gonna be our, our well. If that is to be an idol, then we were seriously we were seriously messed up because we just couldn't attain that. 
if, that, if that's an idol, you're thinking, I, I can't make a golden calf. At best, I've got a little tiny copper calf. Or, you know, like oh, a, you know. I like dung. <laughs> so, anyway. Brian, Debbie, thank you so much for spending some time talking with our listeners and for writing this piece. And thank you for the witness to the resilient mercy and grace of God in your words, you know, in the in this interview and in the piece you've written. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. And again, I, I encourage all of our listeners, please get this magazine and read this article first. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Mockingcast, which is previewing the contents of the mental health issue of our magazine, which has just recently been released. If you like what you heard, please drop over to iTunes and give us a rating. Maybe even write a review, hopefully a favorable one. Maybe even share it with a friend. The Mockingcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, and now ably assisted by my production assistant, David Peterson. Thanks for listening.